welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. This is the podcast where we talk about all things hard rock and heavy metal, and this week, we're talking one-hit wonders of heavy metal. It's a two-part episode, so we have a lot to talk about. For this two-parter, we picked 10 bands that started promising careers with a big hit, but for one reason or another, never regained the momentum they once had. We're going to cover five today and five next time. But first, some reminders. If you enjoy this show and you want to hear our previous episodes, click the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform and get the show delivered to your favorite device each and every week. We also want to interact with you guys and read your opinions. So if you like what we have to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or DM us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're also now on YouTube, so be sure to... We're also now on YouTube, so be sure to subscribe and ring that YouTube bell to be alerted each week when we drop a new episode. So speaking of YouTube, I just got an email saying that we've got a new subscriber. So yeah, so now the the, the, the list continues to grow of, of subscribers that are, are listening to the show on YouTube. So it's cool. Keep it coming, guys. Okay, so this week we have, we're picking five out of the ten bands that we've chosen now we didn't pick any of these bands based on you know sales data we didn't pick any bands on based on chart information or anything like that i just looked up a list of what i thought would be some interesting bands to talk about rather than picking the usual ones you know you're gonna notice at the at the end of the the two episodes that there are some bands that are missing and in some cases you may not think that they're um, one hit wonders. I know I have a, a a few that I purposely didn't pick because I didn't think that they fell into that category. But Chris has a different opinion, and we'll talk about that at a later at a later point. So um, we're going to start off with um, with my pick, or one of my picks, and that is Grim Reaper. Um, Grim Reaper. Uh, the way I look at them, they were a a band that came in at the end of the new wave of British heavy metal. Um, so they were kind of, they kind of had that sound. They kind of had that style of writing or of style of songwriting, but they were, they were transitioning away from that. And they were kind of like in the middle of that whole screaming part of metal, but yet they weren't pop metal. So they were kind of almost in between, but they were leaning way more towards the new wave of British heavy metal. So Grim Reaper's first album was See You in Hell. And it was actually released in 1983 internationally, but it came out in the U.S. in 1984. And their big hit off that where, album... Where are they from? Oh, they're, they're British. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're, they're I, I didn't England. realize that, I guess. Oh, yeah. And I guess... That should have given it away when I said the new wave of British heavy metal. <laughs> but yeah, it should I, have. It, it was my fault for not saying anything. Well, you said at the at kind of the tail end, right? So that doesn't oh, yeah. necessarily mean they they were British. You know, there were some bands that were kind of taking on that sound, but you know that is true. That yeah. is true. So forgive me, folks. I forgot to mention <laughs> they were British. <laughs> but anyhow, they, they're um, they're one hit was the song See You in Hell. That song got a crap load of airplay on MTV. And it, it was, you know, it's it's a performance video with some stuff added in there. It's not the best videos. You know, it's relative 
cheesy metal, just like all the other stuff. But the song to me song is really good. Ass. Yeah. Say what? The song kicks ass. I, I yeah, like I, that I think the song kicks ass. And it's funny because I was reading other, other articles about it. and I'm, So people were blowing him off as, as just like this really crappy band. But you think about the vocals. I mean, Steve Grimmett was a kick-ass vocalist. You know, and Nick Bocott is a great guitar player and to the point where he was even hired. I forgot, I think it was Guitar World. He was doing, uh, uh, or may have been guitar for the practicing musician. I can't remember which magazine it was, but he had a, a long running column on that because he was very technically versed. You know, can't help it if you're in a particular period of time in, your, in, in, in life where that's the style of music that, that, that's out there, you know. I mean, I, mean I, not- I like some of their stuff. Like, I, I really like the, the title track on Rock You to Hell. Um, I mean, I think they had some really good songs. It's just, I you know, the time period that they came out, they just they just didn't hit it. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they had a, a, a really cool start. I mean, See You in Hell really took off for them. And then they had um, some other songs that, that were on the, on the debut album. And it was... It's kind of like hit or miss with with it, it, some people are gonna love it, you know. It's just like you know people who love hair metal and stuff like that, and it just doesn't matter if it has that sound. They're gonna like it. They're gonna start dancing to it. Chicks are gonna start flailing their hair all over the place. But you know, this one was like I said, since it was at the tail end of British heavy metal, it had that kind of rawness that 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 new album had, and it has a similar song structures. But then they were still trying to cross over and get that um, appeal of whatever was happening, quote unquote, in the heavy metal scene. Let's say the L.A. scene or whatever the, uh, that that American scene was coming over to, to England. So, I mean, Dead on Arrival is a pretty cool song of theirs. It, it's it's funny because a lot of these songs, if you if you start skipping the tracks, they actually all sound the same. There's a structure that they have uh, beyond the, the the new wave of British heavy metal structure, but it's the way they wrote the songs that they all have the same, you know, key change from from one to the next, and it goes into the chorus, and the chorus is slightly different, and it lasts for two bars, and it goes back into the verse. It's really very very structured that way, and all a lot of songs except for I think the show must go on. It's an arbitrary ballad out of nowhere from a band that really I don't think needed that kind of. Uh, song on their album yeah i mean as a whole though i think it's a pretty good album you know it has a short run time which is i think kind of beneficial to it as well yeah 33 minutes (laughs) yeah so sometimes albums really don't need to go longer like the filling it out and making it 10 12 songs sometimes i think is a bad idea it doesn't make it a more cohesive album either no not at all and their second album fear no evil um, the song Fear No Evil was a pretty cool song that also got some airplay on MTV, and it was um, it was just going along with that whole concept that they were that they were riding on from See You in Hell, and then when it got to Rock You to Hell, the third album. So now it's 1987. It is the heart of of that whole pop hair metal scene. You know, it wasn't called hair metal back then, but obviously. The, the best way to identify it to the people out there listening is by saying it is heavy metal because it was pop metal, but you know, there's so many different strains of pop metal. Yeah. Hair metal 
everyone kind of understands what the hair metal thing is. It's the Dawkins, the Motley Cruz, the Poison. They kind of all fit into that category. Grim Reaper was not that band, but when they hit, when they did Rock You to Hell, they were starting to try to be that. They were trying to garner that audience. I mean, Steve Grimmett had a really thick head of hair, and then he gave himself, like he straightened out. He had curly hair to begin with, and he straightened it out, and he got himself one crazy-ass long mullet. <laughs> you know, so it was like, all right, dude, I, I know the mullet thing's in, but <laughs> that's a really rough one there. Well, I mean, also you have to think of 1987. It's the height of the hair metal period, and it's also pretty much the height of like thrash metal so when you didn't fall into one of those two categories i think it was really hard to break any you know any um market because it was just those were the things that were going on right exactly so yeah especially with the death of, the, of new wave of british heavy metal there wasn't really any scene if you weren't in the la scene it was the thrash scene the english scene was really rough at that time they didn't know where they fit in True. Um, so, the, for me, Grim Reaper. I mean, it always I was always synonymous with those three albums, um, and I think I have two of them on vinyl. I definitely have See You in Hell on vinyl, um, but I, I I I really do like that song, See You in Hell. I think it's a killer song. Um, I think the album is very good, um, but it does it does fall into that semi cheesy category that bands like this who try to use the dark side of lyrics kind of fall into it if they're not necessarily well versed in that actual uh, experience of the occult it kind of plays off as definitely being cheesy yeah so but again i liked it i thought it was pretty cool um you know but it was they were that was their big hit see you in hell so to follow up on their career um they had these the first three albums, so, so See You in Hell, Fear No Evil, and Rock You to Hell. And then they, they were about ready to make their fourth album, and they had some legal troubles heading into Rock You to Hell, and the legal troubles continued trying to make their fourth album. And essentially, the legal troubles that they had with their record company, which was, they were originally signed to Ebony Records in England, um, they it, it just, it literally just devastated and crippled the career of the band. And they ended up, never really releasing that album but they they tried to stay together they folded for a while they came back i mean they were gone from 1989 it, it wasn't until 2005 or 2006 that they reformed and uh came back as 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 grim reaper again and steve grimmett was the vocalist again but nick bocott was not the guitar player. They so they had, basically it was just Steve Grimmett's band. I think they even called it Steve Grimmett's Grim Reaper because I think Nick Bocott wouldn't give him the the the, the complete rights. He did. So, he did come back briefly, like maybe for just a few shows or something oh yeah. later on. But then it was until like 2014, and then he left again. And it's it's just been the Steve Grimmett's thing ever since. Right, and Steve Grimmett right now, um, I believe he has diabetes or something like that and he lost one of his legs or, or it he was had an, accident. an infection that yeah, an infection that's what it, it was. spread really bad and they had to remove the lower part of his leg yeah. Yeah, so i mean for all for 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 what it's worth a lot of these bands that we're going to talk about tonight still do have careers 
you know, the question is, you know, are they are they a major touring act or are they just, you know, doing stuff for the love of doing stuff? So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think a lot of them continue to have a fan base. Uh, it's just right. a matter of, you know, you know what that fan base, per, you know, consists of, I guess. And the other thing, too, with that is that a lot of bands in the middle 2000s, that, that first decade of the 2000s, um, a lot of bands started to reunite. I don't know if it, if if uh, there was this hole in the industry, or if there because the new metal scene was starting to drag out and die. I don't know what the deal was, but a lot of bands around that time period and then well into the 2010s um, started reforming. You know, saying yeah, we could do it. if they could do it, we could do it. You know, and so it and it's been really really good for the industry as far as, uh, and for fans especially, to getting to see their old old bands that they really enjoyed back in the day that they couldn't get a chance to see the first time. Uh, they may not be the top-notch level that they thought they may have had back in the day, but you know, you're still getting a good show. In, mo- in a lot of cases, you're getting a very intimate show because you're right there. A lot of them are club shows. I think that's cool, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if there's a band that you've been a big fan of and get the chance to see them live in a smaller venue, I think that's one of the best experiences you can ever have. Sometimes it's unfortunate when it's not like all the original guys or whatever, but still, you know, it's it's enjoyable to see it. Yes, it is very enjoyable. So to wrap up Grim Reaper, they did release uh, two more albums uh, that came out in 2016 and 2019, Walking in the Shadows uh, and At the Gaze, respectively. Um, so they are still technically a active band. Um, so if they ever do come to the United States, it might be pretty cool to go check them out. Um, if you're living in Europe and they're touring out there in Europe, go check them out. Give them, give them a little love. All right. Well, that leads us into the first band that I am going to go over. Now, to be honest, this was a band that I was not familiar with before we talked about this, um, but I did end up listening to most, if not all, of their discography um, to kind of of get a feel for who they were and to kind of fully understand because I didn't feel like it was right to – talk about this if I if I didn't know like what they played etc so I actually did go through uh their you know what they were you know playing and as a whole uh but specifically want to talk about their first album um so they I mean they have a pretty interesting sound they're they're called like southern rock southern metal glam uh but there definitely is a blues aspect to the way they play uh the band came from Austin Texas and uh, I think that Texas sound kind of definitely comes out. They started as Onyx in 1987, but changed their name to Dangerous Toys in 1988. And within about three months of them playing as Dangerous Toys, they had a record contract with Columbia. Um, they put out their debut the same year, so they were kind of like rocketed, you know, from from nothing to being, you know, fairly successful. The first album um, was was pretty successful at the time it was even certified gold uh before the album was recorded their lead guitarist and and founder uh tim trembley left the band and that kind of left them you know with a trend of of their guitarist leaving over the next few years they they i think that was one of the things that made it difficult for them to kind of be consistent was they kept 
changing their guitarists and that can definitely change the songwriting that can change the 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 you know the way the band works together so when there's that inconsistency it can be a problem um they had two singles off the first album uh which both kind of got uh heavy rotation on MTV's Headbangers Ball and that was Teasin' and Pleasin' or Teasin' Pleasin' and Scared. Um, do you have, I mean, you kind of were around during that time like watching Headbangers Ball and stuff. Do you remember them kind of being on TV at that time? You know, you saying that brought a giant smile to my face. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it's funny. It's like, because there's such a, a big disparity in your age and my age, yeah, and and you were you were born around the time uh, that um, Headbangers Ball was born, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know? So it's funny because I remember moving from from uh, New York to Florida, and I used to record Headbangers Ball on VHS, and I used to have a VHS tape for every episode. And I, even one day, you know, before computers or before I had a computer and this is late eighties. Now I actually tried to catalog every song and you know, how often they played certain songs oh, wow. and stuff okay. like that. And I had it all written down at one point. And, and, and in late 1987, I remember this vividly. I just kept remembering watching you know, whatever date it was, you know, let's say just arbitrarily October 31st, Headbangers Ball, you know, Welcome to the Jungle, Guns N' Roses, you know, then it was November 7th, Headbangers Ball, Welcome to the Jungle, Guns N' Roses. They played the crap out of that video on MTV when it came out and and that helped break it. But getting back to this, um, yes, they were on um, MTV a lot. The song Tease and Pleasing was huge. As far as this band was concerned, as far as you know, pop metal was concerned, um, that it definitely was um, a big song for them. I don't remember "Scared" whatsoever. Um, I do. I mean, I obviously you know you listen to it and you go, "Oh yeah," but um, as far as I don't remember it being played back then. I don't remember a video for it. I I probably if I look at that list, if I still have it somewhere in a box, I can probably say, "Oh yeah, they played it then." But I, it got you. It wasn't as God's big. honest truth. I don't remember ever seeing or hearing that song back in the day. I mean, listening now, to it, I can definitely hear "Teasin' and Pleasin'" being a bigger hit. Like you, you when you hear a song and you you recognize this was a hit song, uh, and you could you can hear it automatically. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's there's something that that just catches the ear that right way. And I could definitely say that more about "Teasin' and Pleasin'." Um, but I also, I, I tend to, to enjoy the, the more rock songs than I do anything that's kind of a ballad. So for me, that's, that's the connection that I get. Okay. And that's fair enough because I, I I mean, I I totally get that too. And, and then we've mentioned it before on previous episodes, there's always when, when, when there's a lead single or, or a big hit from an album, you can always tell when a band has worked on that one song because they True. know that's the hit. Yeah. And it's either, it either sounds different it. or it's louder or something. It's, it's very strange how that is, it, but it's understandable. You're working harder to get that one song to be your best. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of your baby at that point in a way, and you're trying to take more care of it than 
the right, other babies. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so the the band kind of went on a downward trend from there. You know, their first album came out. Uh, it it was a big hit. They were on a rocket. You know, they they were just going up and up. And then their second album came out, uh, Hellacious Acres, and it just didn't have really any big hits on it. It was it was still pretty decent, but it just it it wasn't in that upward trend. And, you know, definitely a sophomore slump. And Columbia ended up dropping them after that album. And I would say part of that is due to this was you know 1988 when the first album came out, and so you know what's right around the corner, and the sounds changing with grunge. So if it wasn't you know, some of these bands, if they weren't putting out a hit, then the record companies didn't really have any reason to keep them around. So yes, absolutely. That was kind of the, the trend. So they tried to adapt their sound a little bit with their third album, which was called pissed. Um, you can already kind of tell from the name of the album, they took on a, a much angrier tone. Um, they, you know, Things were changing in 1994. Like that was that was kind of the height of some of the change. So this was this was an album that didn't really hit it because you have to think about they're still kind of coming out with this glam southern metal sound, even though they're trying to sound edgier. It's just not, you know, it's not finding that that sound that these these grunge bands were putting out. So it was kind of overlooked. It was on a smaller uh, record label. So they tried one more time with one last release in 1995. And it was just a complete mistake, complete flop. They thought, you know, let's kind of parody Prince with his, the artist formerly known as Prince. They released the artist, R uh, asterisk tist (laughs) for the number Asterisk Merle, known as Dangerous Toys. And it's a terrible album cover that's parodying Love Sexy, uh, which was the one with Prince kind of sitting on the cover naked. And they had a cartoon character doing the same thing. And it just it it just came off the wrong way and it barely sold anything. And that was kind of it for them. Um they they basically have been around ever since but they really only play a few shows a year they just kind of get together uh they did a live album in 1999 and that was kind of like the last effort that they tried to put out other than they did a cover song on a leonard skinner tribute album in 2007 they did simple man and uh, like i said uh, you know ever since they've been on and off playing they They've done only one show a year a couple times. They've done a few shows. They've, they've been really inconsistent with their touring, but they've managed to kind of stay around and keep, you know, some kind of fan base in Austin. And then a lot of the members kind of formed other bands in the Austin scene. And that's just kind of where they've been at. But I think the biggest factor in why they never really hit it past their first album was grunge kind of getting in the way and they they just they tried to adapt their sound but it just wasn't something that they were capable of doing you know 
living through that period because the, the the second album Hellacious Acres came out in 1991, and that's when I was working at the record store, and I actually got that as a promo. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yes, it's a ba- it's not a good album at all. Um, you listen to it, it's really generic. When you think about the time that these band that this band came out, uh, 88, 89, and you realize that that's, you know, a lot of these hair bands you want to talk about them were coming out at that time. Um, you know, Badlands came out at that time. Uh, obviously, Dangerous Dangerous Toys came out at that time. Uh, we were talking about, uh, it was like Trickster came out around at that, at that time. Um, Steelheart, you know, all these bands. To me, I look at that as like they were the second wave of, the, of that musical genre. And it was really just, they were nowhere near as a quality of songwriting that the first wave had. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's the reason, like, you sit there and say, well, in 1991, grunge was coming out. You know what? In 1991, yes, grunge was, you know, coming out. But if you put out a good record, you were going to do well, okay? Because Van Halen did well. Metallica did well. You know, Saigon Kick you know, did well enough to get a, a second album, you know, done uh, a yeah, few but, years later. But Van Halen and Metallica also changed their sound as they grew and matured. They didn't try to just hang on to what was popular at the time. Like a lot of these bands, and we discussed this before in our in our episodes where we talked about genres of music. I think Thrash was one of the bigger ones where we, we, we noticed this was a lot of these bands realized that they they kind of were one trick ponies and then they tried to like go into a different genre of music because they they knew that they weren't going to be successful and it didn't work for them so they they weren't the top tier songwriters or anything but i think had they hit you know when it was early on like if they had been writing songs earlier like if they came out in like 1983 or something that like that they probably would have had a longer career but they still would have fizzled out around this time oh absolutely but you know yeah metallica changed their sound but but even then what metallica put out with the black album which they're celebrating this year it still wasn't grunge no but it was grunge but it was good and that's no it was yeah and that's that well that's part of my point too it was good van halen's album was good pound cake run around but i don't think Uh, van halen would have been at the top at still if they just played exactly the same stuff that they were doing earlier they were a they were a band that was an influencer rather than being the influenced and this that's the same for metallica whereas Mm-hmm. Some of these bands could be successful, but they're still not innovators. You know, there's right. a lot of bands you know, out there that are. And the same with artists any, of any type. There are some that are going to be the the innovators and the influencers, and some are just going to be, you know, good, but they're not going to be the those guys. They're never going to be those guys. And I think I, that I, this is one of those bands. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's why I said they were part of the second wave. They just they just weren't good enough, and they. The the songs were okay, adequate. You can't have okay and adequate when you've got a an entire genre and and group of people just ready to bar, barge and and tear down the walls mm-hmm. and, and and break through to to the mainstream. But you know there were bands that survived. 
you know, and there were bands that thrived that were not grunge, that were part of this category. I mean, although, and I don't want to, I can't even use Motley Crue as an example, but think about it. Motley Crue's album, uh, Dr. Feelgood, that came out in 89, didn't it? Yeah, but it was their you know, last hurrah because everything it was their last hurrah. Everything that it, came after it has never been anywhere I mean, close. It, no, but but they, that song "Primal Scream" that came out on their on that um, decade of decadence that came out in nineteen ninety one. So that that still showed that they could still write in that vein, and and Dangerous Toys just couldn't keep up with it well i mean as much as i don't like poison poison was able to do the poison exactly exactly what they were able to transcend but even they got caught in that because that that album after uh flesh and blood that album when they when cc ended up being fired and they and they made the native blood was it native blood native tongue okay that album they had one single, which I think was a song stand, and the rest of it was really bad. It wasn't that great. Richie Cotson did a good job playing guitar, but song wise, it was a completely different band. Yeah, I mean, they were trying to be mature. That's a lineup to be, change, too. And that's, yeah. I mean, they had already gone through all the shit with CC. You know, it, 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 he was a mess. And I think he definitely affected the mood and everything of the band as well. So, right, I mean, and like Motley Crue changing singers, okay. And I don't care what anybody else there. You know, I would I want to hear the comments on this one. I don't care what anybody thinks out there. If that album was as good as everyone thinks it was or is, okay, it would be a big album, and it's not. It sucked. That Motley Crue album with John Karabi sucked. And I know Matt in Miami is going to say no. It was one of their best. I'm sorry, it sucked. Okay, because if it if it was good at at all, if it was good at all, it would have sold millions of records. And you know what, John Karabi probably wouldn't have been fired, but because it it came out of the gate and everyone sat there and said, "What the hell?" You know, they were trying to be a combination of Nine Inch Nails and grunge and pop metal all at the same time. It sucked. The album sucked, okay? And if everyone out there or anybody out there disagrees with me, give me some comments. I want to hear it, okay? So anyway, that's my tirade. (laughs) (laughs) That's my rant for this week. All right, so that was Dangerous Toys. Um, We're going to move on now to Torah Torah. And let's, let's, let's hear it. Torah Torah falls into the same exact category as dangerous toys. Okay. Torah Torah came out in 1989. Same year or same time period. You know, they had a hit single with the song Walking Shoes. And I look at it this way. The album was released at the end of the pop metal movement. That 1989, 1990 time period was the end of that movement. And, you know, it, it, it just overall the album probably better than the Dangerous Toys album. I mean, it had some good songs. They had they did release other singles, um, you know, and one of the songs was even featured in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which was a song "Dancing with a Gypsy." But again, it it there was something about it that just said they were not upper tier. They were not the next level. They were actually probably a step down. Um, they're you know so. 
they got this really cool song, Walking Shoes, and they're, mind you, they're, uh, let me, let me start that again. They were stepped down. Okay. They're, this is a band that is coming out of Memphis, Tennessee. And so, you know, not a lot of hair metal bands are coming out of or pop metal at the time are coming out of Memphis, Tennessee. It wasn't really a big scene as far as metal was concerned, you know, but they, they, they were, they were making it for, for what it was worth at the time. They go to make their second album called wild America. It was released three years later. And that's the other thing too. A lot of these bands look at uh, dangerous toys Two years after the release of the first album, two and a half years. This album, three years after the release of the first album. What are they waiting for? Yeah, it kind of the, the, dropped the, you the from recording. the public consciousness at that point. Yeah, I mean, I understand that 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 the that the the movement in the in the whole recording cycle kind of shifted um, a little bit, and and bands were taking longer tours and they were stretching it out because they had three or four or five songs coming off an album i mean cinderella took three years but i think between albums because i think the first album came out in 85 the second album came out in 88 but they had good songs you know and then and then long cold winter had very good songs and they toured on it but then they they said they had to have another album so in 1990 they came out with their third album so it was two years apart but I think that was the record company pushing them to say, "Hey, you need to keep in the in the in the consciousness of of the, the conscious stream of people listening to this music." And um, so for for Torah Torah, you know, it, they they they're three years later and they released their second album, and it it failed to achieve, to achieve any of the moderate success that the, that the first album did. And then they went to go do a third album a couple years later, and that never got released and essentially the band folded right after that um record company basically just held it back and said no didn't they end up releasing it like years later yes the um the album was called um revolution day and in 2011 the the record company in conjunction with the band FNA Records, which was a different company than what they signed with originally, FNA Records basically had I guess gotten the rights to all their music, and they released that album finally, along with a couple other albums that they also released that that kind of had like bonus tracks from the first album, bonus tracks from the second album, some live stuff. Um, the, the interesting, the most interesting thing about this band right now is they have never, and they still play today. They have never had a lineup change. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, that's that rare. Is amazing that the same. And mind you, they they broke up, and not not really broke up. They just said they stopped playing. You know, they didn't have a deal, and they you know they they reunited several times over the years. But every time they reunited, same four guys. Wow, that's and cool. That is really cool. I mean. To the point, Striper used to sit there and say that they had that, but they technically didn't because Tim Gaines left at a certain point in, in time and then came back, and he then he recently got fired, and now they have the guy that was in Enough's Enough. So they, they're, they're now, at this point, not an original band anymore. They were one of the last few. You know, Poison, but Poison had fired CC, and he came back. This band never had a lineup change. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I think that's outstanding. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few that have had like one or two, and then they ended up with the same. Like Aerosmith's a good example of right. most of their career, they've had the same lineup. 
Um, and then, like you said, poison. But it's rare. It's so rare. Oh, it's very rare. Eddie, Eddie Trunk talks about that a lot, how it's so rare to have bands like that, you know, the original lineup still together. And and it's it, it's extremely rare. And you, you start thinking about it, you're like, okay, who's, you know, Motley Crue? Yes. But they had a lineup change. Mm-hmm. You know, Poison had a lineup they, change. Yeah, Motley Crue had, had two lineup changes, right? Because they had a... Uh, yeah, yes, right. Because uh, Tommy Lee left for a while. Yep. You know, and they had, th- I think, two or three different drummers because they had that, that girl drummer. They had Randy Castillo. Uh, and I forgot who was the, the person who replaced Randy for the tour, you know. Yeah. So they, they've, they've had um, their their share of lineup changes, but they've, they're back at the originals. So Walking Shoes is a really cool song. I really like it. I mean, especially if you're into that that scene of, of metal. Um, it's got, it, it. there's a lot that reminds me of, uh, you know, it's got that acoustic intro. It reminds me a little bit of Uncle Tom's Cabin from Warrant. Um, so that's, uh, you know, some some similarities there. And no, we're not going to talk about Warrant on this episode or the next one. And many people can consider them a one-hit wonder, but that's part of what, Chris and I are going to debate as to as far as what qualifies these bands as one hit wonders. Um, but we'll do that a little, little bit later on. Um, so what do you got next, Chris? All right. So the next one I want to talk about is, uh, living color. They were a band that uh, formed in 1984. Uh, but it wasn't until 1986 that the band formed a consistent lineup. Uh, in 1988, they released Vivid, which reached number six and became one of the most popular albums of the year and has since reached uh, or has been certified double platinum. So pretty successful album from 1988. Um, interestingly enough, Mick Jagger was one of the producers on the album. I thought that was kind of a cool fact. So what? One thing that kind of makes them an interesting band is that they are a an African-American or black band, um, which is not very common in the metal scene, especially at that point. And they have kind of a funk sound to them, too. Um, but, the, I mean, some of their riffs are, are pretty heavy. I mean, pretty good. So um, I am a big fan of this album. Uh, I, I recognize that they are a one-hit wonder technically, um, but I do feel like throughout their career, they've released some pretty good albums. Um, so Cult of Personality is really the big hit and what kind of qualifies them as a one-hit wonder. Uh, it reached number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100, number 9 on the Billboard Album Rock chart, Tracks chart. Um, it won a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance and MTV Music Award for Best Group Video and separately for Best New Artist. So pretty big uh, accolades for one track. Um, it's since been used by wrestler CM Punk. Um, he used it in his time in WWE, Ring of Honor, UFC, and now currently in AEW. Um, it, they Living Color actually even performed the track at uh, WrestleMania 29 for Punk's interest, entrance, which was really cool. Um, the song has also appeared in a number of video games and a couple films. Um, along with that track, there were a total of five singles released about, for the album with varying success. Um, definitely Cult of Personality was the most popular one at the time. Um, 
Living Color followed up their debut album with Time's Up. Uh, the album was a bit more diverse in sound, kind of leaning more into the jazz elements and more into the funk than than some of the rock aspects of it. Uh, but it did reach gold status, and it did hit number 13 on the Billboard 200, uh, also winning a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance. So they still kind of were, were popular, but there's no... On that particular album, there was no major hit. So they were kind of still... like. I would still consider it a sophomore slump because you're going from a double platinum record to a gold record. So following this album, their bassist Muzz Skillings left the band and was replaced by Doug Wimbish. And this was another case of the nineties kind of making an impact on the sound of a band. So I would say that new living color isn't one of those bands that couldn't persevere in a way they still have a pretty large fan base and they still have a unique sound. But the one time that they tried to kind of change their sound was their least successful album. And that was the third album, um, the stain or it's just called stain. Sorry. Um, there was (laughs) the reason I said the stain was because there was actually a lawsuit from John Stainbrook of the band, the stain, that caused production to cease on it and further copies of of the album were were put out out of production i mean that's a big impact on a band to release their third album and then not have any traction on it because of a lawsuit i think we've kind of mentioned that with others was that's that is something that happens and it it just kills the momentum so the other problem with the third album was they really changed their sound from this funk metal band to alternative. And the, you, if you listen to the album, you can you can hear a lot less of the jazz sound, a lot less of the funk, and it's it's got more pessimistic lyrics. It was like they were trying to kind of not necessarily necessarily fit into the grunge sound, but the attitude. And it just doesn't really work. Woe is me. Yeah. <laughs> and so they they ended up splitting up due to... Mi- mi- um, sorry. They ended up splitting up due to musical differences in 1995. But they ended up reforming in late 2000. And since, they've released three more albums. And I would say they're pretty good albums. Uh, the the With the chair in the doorway, even charted at 161, which is pretty low on 200, but at the same time for a band that had been inactive for a while to come back and release an album that charts at least, I think that's that's an accomplishment in a world where music is no longer kind of focusing on the metal world either. So... I I think this is this is one of those bands that they kind of they tried something different but they know where their lane is and they still continue to release albums and and I think they just they have a kind of a hard place to sit in the metal world in a weird in a way too because to have that kind of jazz funk fusion into metal and you know try to find that popularity the the difference is you know you have a song like personality or cult of personality which has some of those elements but it also has a riff that i think transcends that genre so it's hard 
for a band like this to kind of find their place. Uh, but I think I think they do have a pretty good fan base. Uh, there's a lot, you know, a lot of people that go to see them every time they play. So, you know, they're they're never gonna be one of those bands that kind of rises up, and unless they just happen to write a, another, you know, cross genre hit. But I think they've they've found their place, and they're they're kind of satisfied where they are. Yeah, they're satisfied on the royalties that they get from Livia from the oh, cult of personality. For sure. <laughs> from that I mean, first album, yeah. It the first album's great, you know, and and obviously cult of personality has transcended genres. It has transcended uh decades mm-hmm. of to 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 be, you know, it's still CM Punk's song today in AEW, like you said. And every time that thing kicks in, it's just people love the song. And it's yeah, amazing. And it has really relevant lyrics to any generation. Yeah. So and, I mean, and so that, that's yeah. one of those songs that that out uh, is just like I said, it just transcends time, and you it could it could be released today, and it would be a hit because it, it's that good, mm-hmm. you know. And and even then, the recording of it sounded awesome from 1988. It does not sound dated whatsoever. No, no, it's and because, and the instrumentation's not dated either, right. which is and great. You, and you can't sit there and say, "Oh, well, that's from the '80s," even with the recording or the just the style of the song. That's that's what was so good about it's it. Timeless, that song yeah. just had there was no pinpointing. Oh, yeah, that came out then. That came. No, you can't. If it came out today, it would be just as big a hit, you know. And if it if it came out five years ago, it would sound the same and be just as big a hit it's just one of those songs after that you know i i I think they felt like i guess they got pigeonholed because they had this one really great song but the album itself doesn't pigeonhole them because it's it's such a diverse album the next album just did not have that anchor song you know and then stain comes out and that's the album that i have Mm -hmm. um i have Cult of Person uh, or Vivid, and I have Stain. Stain I got as a promo because I worked at the record store, and it's just it's completely different, and you, it's almost like a different band when you listen to it. And I can understand, I, I could see why, you know, no one picked up on it because it was different, and it's like, what band is this? This yeah. doesn't even sound the same, you know. So it, it, those kinds of things are tough. You know, and yeah, they're they're trying to figure out where their place is in, in this genre, but that's the thing. They should never have tried that because you know what? They never had a particular place. They were all over the place in, in with diversity, and that's what worked for them. Yeah, they and that's, just that's stuck where in that they've lane. yeah, that's where they've gotten back to. Um, the the first, second, and and every album since has been kind of in that same lane where they've they've been very diverse and they've introduced a lot of different genres into metal um whereas that third album was kind of the outlier and it doesn't it doesn't really work in their sound so they were trying too hard yeah so absolutely i I love that song cult of personality is just amazing song Mm -hmm. Uh, completely okay well that brings us to um group number five that we're going to talk about, and that's going to be the last one for this evening. Um, and that is the band Keel, uh, K-E-E-L, for some people who 
you know, if, if I'm, if I'm not saying it clear enough, <laughs> um, they are, I, I'm not even going to put them in the, the hair metal category per se, but they are, they were at the beginning of that whole movement. They were part of the quote unquote LA scene that was, was pushing out that style of music. Um, they, so they came out about the same time as, um, a few years behind Motley Crue, but around the same, you know, like a year behind, um, uh, Wasp, uh, you know, a year ahead. No, actually the same year as Poison. So they, they were lumped into that category by chance. Um, so their their first their first album was not the right to rock, which is the 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 one hit that they had. Their first album was called "Lay Down the Law." It was re- released independently, but because that had such a groundswell of interest from the fans, and and you know they had a lot of stuff going on, it caught the eye of one bass player, Gene Simmons, and so Gene Simmons from Kiss uh, told you know basically signed him to his record company which was then being distributed i believe by mca records so they kind of had what you would say a major deal and so their um second album was called the right to rock it was produced by gene simmons um but unfortunately when they got this deal they they were told all right now you got to go into the studio and they had not sat down to write songs at this point so they literally took three songs from their first album re-recorded it and we kind of discussed this one time before when keel the right to rock the song was my rusty metal and we kind of touched upon this but this is now expanding on that and they had the three songs that they wrote uh that they re-recorded from the first album even changing the title of one of them to to be more uh mainstream i guess you want to put it that way uh they they also recorded three gene simmons songs that he uh showed them and then they um, recorded a couple of new tracks on on that album. They, the song "The Right to Rock," is a killer song. I mean, I remember, you know, 1985. I'm 16 years old. This song comes out, and I'm just screaming at the top of my lungs, "The Right to Rock!" And 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 then I'm. It was it was such an anthem for that day. You know that that along with uh, Lizzie Borden's American Metal, those two songs came out around the same time. Mm-hmm. It's just awesome, awesome. You know, and and that was the heyday. That was the, the transition between the the rawness of bands like Rats' uh, e, uh, original EP, Motley Crue's Too Fast for Love, and then going into the mainstream. This was part of that. And it was it was so cool to be a part of that when you look back on it now. Um, the band themselves have uh, they recorded a couple more albums after that. They released four studio albums in the eighties overall, um, but they never really got they never really got that fame that they were desiring. I mean, they they recorded and then re-recorded "Let's Spend the Night Together" from the Rolling Stones. They did uh, "Because the Night," the Patti Smith song. They just they tried these covers and just could not get over that hump because their songs just weren't that good, 
overall. And covers are only going to take you so far. Exactly. You know, the covers will only take you so far. And you got to have something of your own to be able to sit there and say, hey, this is our this is our baby. The Right to Rock was that. But they never came anywhere close to that again. And, you know, it, it ended up becoming generic. You know, it was black and blue. It, they came around around the same time. And it was just generic. So they, you know, they they broke up. They got back together. They reunited several times over the years. They reformed and released a new album in 2010. It was called Streets of Rock and Roll. But the band itself is just is kind of, you know, disbanded. And they're kind of all over the place. Ron Keel has his own solo career. He actually is a country artist. So he he, he tries to mix in the country with the with the pop metal hair metal kind of vibe all together. So he, he's kind of like trying to be a crossover artist. He's had a semi successful career, if you want to put it that way, but you know, he's still not, uh, he's nowhere near the level of a Tim McGraw or anybody like that. So, yeah, I'm, I don't follow country, but I also haven't heard of, I didn't realize he was a country artist. Oh yeah. He, he was, he was a country artist for a while. Sort of like, uh, what's his face? Uh, Mr. Lewis. No, Mr. (laughs) Lewis. Who'd you say? Steven Tyler. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Steven Tyler. That's right. He's a country artist. It's not that hard. Trust me. (laughs) Um, I, I, I like right to rock is cool. Now, one criticism I do got to say, and I, I, I want, Anybody who's out there and who's listening to this to to really, really, really listen to this track carefully, The Right to Rock, and you will notice, I may have said this before when we talked about it the first time, you will notice that as soon as the chorus comes on and, you know, Ron sings, you've got it, right? And the, the, the whole gang vocals comes in and says, The Right to Rock, you will hear a hiss begin right before they say the right to rock and end right after they say the right to rock because yeah, you that, and I have actually talked about that yes, before. Yeah. This, that's a studio trick for, for you people out there. And and nowadays you won't ever hear this because of, of pro tools and all that stuff. But back then with two inch tape, they would take and record the vocals on a tape and then they would loop it in to wherever they needed it throughout the song. So essentially, the, all, the, the band did the right to rock one time. And each time that they sang the chorus, they just inserted tape, you know, so, so they punched it in. And it was so bad because it sounds like a third or fourth generation hiss on that tape. So it's so clear. And I'm like, wow, did they really just do that? And I had not noticed it. As a kid, you know, you don't think about these things. And one day I was like listening to, I guess, a remastered version. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> someone needs to fix that because <laughs> that's blatantly bad. But that is what it is. Um, I liked that song back in the day. I liked the album. I liked their second album, I think, which was um, uh, not The Final Frontier, was it? That's uh, Iron Maiden. <laughs> they had one, too. <laughs> um I'm not as familiar with Keel, to be honest. No, Keel was one of those bands that just never really, like, I, I didn't really hear them. I remember li- hearing them on, 
VH1 or not VH1 was it? Yeah, I guess it was VH1 Classic had mm-hmm. the one hit wonder specials. Yeah. So I actually that's where I heard of them was as a one hit wonder. So yeah, and, and and it was the right to rock. Yes. Yeah, the, the Final Frontier was the album that came out after that, and that's the one that had "Because the Night" on it. <clears throat> and it, it's, I mean, it's a really good version, you know. But really, realistically, everything else on there is very generic um, pop metal uh, for the time, so it, it didn't go anywhere. Um, yeah. And and as good as as good as their version of "Because the Night" is, if I'm not mistaken, we're talking 1986 here. Um, God, uh, Ten Thousand Maniacs still had not come out with their version of it, but you know, I think Ten Thousand Maniacs came out in '93 with their version. I think it was the uh, the unplugged version that was really cool. Um, I didn't even, I had no idea that that was a cover song back in the day. I had maybe heard it once or twice, and then you know, Ten Thousand Maniacs, you know, goes crazy with that with their version of that song, and then I go back and I listen to this. I'm like, oh shit. This this album has that song because of the night on it. That's pretty cool. Their version a little harder, sort of. They're, they're, I guess they were trying to accomplish something similar to how Judas Priest um, uh, turned around Joan Baez's song. And um, what's that song called? Uh, Diamonds and Rust. Diamonds and Rust. I was gonna say Green Man Leashy, but that's Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> yeah. Um, they had the Joan Baez Diamonds and Rust song, which now. They do a killer version because it's like half Joan Baez and half Judas Priest version, and I, I love the way they do it now. You know, like the first half is, is acoustic, and the second half is just the the, the metal part, which I yeah, love. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so then you know, Keel comes out with their self titled album, nineteen eighty seven, and Larger Than Live, and and they just never they never went anywhere, and it's unfortunate. They did break up in 1990. They got back together in 98. They broke They broke up in 99. They were defunct until 2009. And then they technically have been together ever since, but they're not really a major touring band. And I think Ron goes back and forth between the country and the metal. And that's where uh, he's at today. Mm. So that's our five bands for, for, for this episode. But one thing I wanted to talk to you about, Chris... Uh, we kept, I've alluded to it, and it's the um, how do we determine what we think a one-hit wonder band is compared to what, let's say, the mainstream might consider a one-hit wonder band? Well, I mean, in my eyes, it kind of is what the mainstream considers because there's a lot of bands that have a really good fan base. They have a lot of success, but they never hit those billboard charts or, you know, um, what I guess what the mainstream would consider to be a hit. So it doesn't matter if they've sold, you know, really good amounts of records or whatever, but or put out quality music, um, but they're just not, you know, putting out what the mainstream would consider to be hits. Right, I, and like I, I get that to some degree, but like for instance, uh, let's let's pick out Dio. Okay? okay, let's just pick out his solo band, Dio, the Dio band. The first album, he's got Rainbow in the Dark. It's a, it's a hit for him, right? Yes. Um, I'm and I'm not putting him in the one hit wonder category because the next album, Last in Line. He has the hit, The Last in Line. He had a, a, a hit single with Hungry for Heaven. Um, he had a hit single with Mystery. Um, he had some hits. 
But those hits were not charting hits. They weren't top ten singles, you know. Listen, you know, and you can mm-hmm. hear them on on Z one hundred or Y one hundred, whatever station was was playing, you know, pop music. But they were popular with within the genre that they were mm-hmm. playing. So the mainstream idea is like you get a band, um, and and. And I'm going to talk. I'm going to. I'm going to talk about this particular band. We're not going to talk about them in in this ten that we're picking. But Twisted Sister has this huge hit with "We're Not Going to Take It." It charts now. It's not necessarily charting top ten, I don't think, but it charted in the top forty. Um, and then I believe uh, "I Want to Rock" charted in the top one hundred, but I don't think it was ever like a top ten hit either. But there were huge, huge hits on MTV playing every freaking 30 minutes. Yes. You know, but that band, that was their third album. You know, so they released Under the Blade and then they released You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. And You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, the song had a, vi- uh, had a video that was played on MTV probably after midnight, not because it was bad or anything like that, but just because that kind of that music wasn't being played in 1983 back then. Um, or, you know, it wasn't mainstream enough because, you know, it wasn't like ACDC or Iron Maiden that was on MTV. But, you know, you get to their third album, and this was basically make it or break it time for Twisted Sister. And their second album, You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, had some good hits, some, some minor hits in England uh, with I Am, I'm Me, um, The Kids Are Back. You know, but it, it was in England. It wasn't the United States. They come out with their third album and, and they come out with We're Not Going to Take it. it. It just blows the doors off of everything. And then their career kind of goes downhill from there. So... I would can I would put them in the one hit wonder category only because their career nosedived. The funny thing is, is that their career I mean they they started in the 70s and their career in the 80s lasted from 82 to 86 predominantly. They did have a couple albums after um Stay Hungry. So for me I I I'm I'm a fan of the encompassing career, and I have other songs that I like more than we're not going to take it. So it's it's I look at them as a very different kind of one hit wonder. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I mean, I guess at the same time you have to consider like what they're known for is we're not going to take it. I mean, it appeared on commercials. I think D Schneider actually appeared on a couple commercials singing the song and stuff like that. So I think there is an aspect of that's what they're known for. They're not known for all these other songs that are good and that are very popular in the metal genre and with metal fans, but they're known in the, the collective consciousness of, of the public for, we're not going to take it. So right, I get that. So I think that's kind of what people will know them as a one-hit wonder. I think I think it's harder to define because metal has a different kind of fan base than a lot of genres of music. If you are a one-hit wonder in pop, then you're pretty much oh, that's that's either all you released or you know there's there's not much else to your career. You know, if you're Stacy Q, you release like a couple 
you know albums or whatever but was it the two of hearts <laughs> yeah like I, but i bring it up because you think about it like metal bands have a different attitude too and and if you think about the 80s like the 80s there was just a scene where even if you weren't the best band you could kind of latch on to the genre you know right so it's it it was a different field like if you were a, a, a solo artist in the pop genre and you had one hit and it it didn't really take you anywhere beyond that, then the the music career, I mean the the music industry, um, probably dropped you pretty quick. Yeah. Whereas there was a way to kind of persevere in the metal community, I think. Yeah, and you're, you're absolutely correct with that. You know, yeah. they they spent time trying to develop. And because rock in general is one of those things that you need to develop where, yes. you know, in pop music, they're looking for the next big hit. And as you know, if you got it, you got it. Hey, come here. You know, you're next. Boom. You know, mm-hmm. next line. They, they, and then when you don't got it, you don't got you it. Out. Exactly. Yep. If you don't got it, you're gone. All right. Well, that brings us to our big four for tonight. And that big four is one hit wonder metal songs. Um, so I went first last time, so you go first this time. All right. So my number four is going to be a track that you probably disagree with, um, but it's it's from a band that I was never that big a fan of. I've recently more or become more of a fan of. Um, but this this track also represents something that I don't like about the band but i can't deny that it's a great song so uh without further ado and me going on forever and ever uh i picked queen's silent lucidity um and the reason why is like we mentioned or i said that i consider it a one-hit wonder because that was the track that that hit the you know cross genres and was was able to be popular with the pop fan base as well as the metal etc so um it's the only one that that charted in in the pop charts so um silent lucidity what i don't like about it is what it represents about the the change in the band style and how jeff tate kind of became um in control of the band I think we've talked about that before where it became kind of the Jeff Tate show and everybody else was along for the ride to a degree right. where we've seen more in recent years since they got away from him. Uh, like it sounds like they ran away from him or something, but you <laughs> <laughs> sound like he had him locked up in a cage. Yeah. He had him locked <laughs> in a cage, but you know, since they've, they've changed singers, the, they've been allowed to kind of have more of that created creativity again that they had in the early portion of their career. And, um, I think Silent Lucidity uh, is is one of those. It's from the time period where that was kind of starting to change. Um, but regardless, Jeff Tate's vocals on the track are amazing. It's a really good song, um, and kind of seeing it from the perspective of of you know just how he's able to kind of hit such a variety of sounds like octaves he, he can switch on a dime and it, it, at this point in his career his voice is still very young and it's just it's really just one of those tracks you if you haven't heard it you need to listen to it and give it a chance because it's 
it's pretty impressive. Uh, my number three is the first band you talked about today, Grim Reaper. Um, I've always liked See You in Hell. I've always liked them as a whole. Uh, their career was very short, um, but uh, See You in Hell, I think, is a great track, and I, I like the harmony vocals on it. I think it sounds really awesome, so it's it's been one that I've been a fan of for a long time. My number two, I guess it's kind of debatable, um, but it's one that I... I don't know if they're technically a one-hit wonder, but... From what I could tell, it is. So tell me if I'm wrong, but I picked Danzig with Mother. Ooh, you know, that is one that I didn't think about. But what's funny about that is that when it first came out, it was a quote-unquote hit within the genre. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until they came out with the, the live EP, Thrall Demon Sweat Live, I think it was called, that mother, the live version of mother kind of started getting airplay. And then basically a, I think a remix version of the actual original came out and became the hit that it, that basically made Danzig a relative household name for a time period. So, yeah. yeah. So I would, I would say, yes, that qualifies because quite honestly, you ask anybody out there, you know, what do you know about Glenn Danzig? And we're talking about the band, you know, Danzig Demand. They're only going to say mother. They don't know about Twisted Cane. And hell, if I don't, if I know, I mean, I have their first three or four albums. If I don't, if I know another song off their three, first three or four albums, I have no idea what they are. <laughs> so. Yeah. It, the, so the thing is about this track is that if you, if you talk to any Danzig fan, they're probably going to be kind of dismissive of this track because it is such a mainstream, it does have such a mainstream appeal. Um, but it has mainstream appeal because it's a good track. Exactly. I mean, he, he even called Rick Rubin when he, he made the song and he said, I have the probably the best song I've ever written on my hands right now. And it it is. I mean, it's it's an awesome song, and it's it is the only one that people are going to go. Oh yeah, like if you if you say Danzig, like you said, um, most people are going to go. Oh, that song, Mother. You know, they're not going to know the other stuff. So I they, think they're probably not th- even going to know Danzig. You just tell them the song, Mother, Mother. Then they go, Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, that I know guy. That one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I, I love it. I mean, it's appeared in some video games. It's appeared in you know, uh, uh, movies and TV shows and stuff like that. So it does have that kind of collective consciousness appeal as well. Yep. And my number one is living color cult of personality. I've always loved this, this song. Um, when, when CM Punk started using it on wrestling, I was so happy. I, I just, I was blown away. It was such an awesome track. I've always really liked living color. Um, unfortunately I've never gotten to see them live. I had the opportunity one time, but I ended up getting sick and wasn't able to go see them. So hopefully someday that's something I can do, but, uh, it's a great album, great song. And it just, if you hear that opening, um, you know, and you hear the, the speeches that are integrated into the song, the marching, or you just hear that version that, that CM Punk has used with its kind of cuts right at the beginning of the track. Um, it just, it gets you in, you in high gear. It's awesome. So definitely my number one. Cool. I like your list. Um, 
Again, uh, yes, I don't necessarily agree with the Queen's Reich, but I can see where you're coming from. Um, my big four metal one-hit wonders. Number four, the band Britney Fox with the song Girl School. Now, that first album that they released, Britney Fox self-titled album, debut album, had two songs that were pretty big for them, which was Girl School and Long, uh, Long Way to Love, I think it was called. Long Way to Love is just not as good as Girl School. Girl School's killer song. And I, that's the reason why I picked it at number four. I mean, there's just so many songs to choose from when it comes to these one-hit wonder bands and stuff like that. But these are the ones that really stick out for me. And, and yes, I, I do like uh, a couple of songs. I completely forgot about Danzig. <laughs> but I probably wouldn't have made my list still. Because number three, Keel, The Right to Rock, that was just such a... a for, for the time period it was just there in my mind and I forgot again because I don't look at some of these bands the same way as you do as far as you know um, mainstream viability I didn't think about putting um, whatchamacallit uh, Lizzie Borden on there because the one song that everyone knows in the rock world by Lizzie Borden is um, the song uh Oh, what's the name of the song? Me Against the World. But for me, American Metal to me is a better song, and I love that song. So that that that's the, the contrast of why I don't think that they're a one-hit wonder. Anyway, Keel, The Right to Rock, number three for me. Uh, number two is your number one, Living Colors, The Cult of Personality. It is just, that, I love that song, and I love hearing that riff. When that riff kicks in, and I just wait for the drums to start kicking, and I, I love that song. Love that song. All right, and number one for me is a song, is a band that we're not talking about in this, and, and they probably lead, they're right up there with Twisted Sister um, as far as hitting the mainstream and having a career but never really having anything else that went along with it. And that's Quiet Riot's Come On, Feel the Noise off of the Metal Health album. Um, that album was huge. The song was huge. That song pushed the album to number one. The, the song itself, I believe, hit top 40. It was all over the radio in 1984, or 1983, excuse me. Um, even to this day, you listen to any of these classic rock radio stations or, or even some of the ones that play 80s music, that song is going to be on there at least two or three times a day. Um, and they had a very long career after that, but they never came close to the heights that Come On, Feel the Noise brought them. So that's my big four one-hit wonders metal songs. Well, that brings an end to part one of the one-hit wonders of heavy metal. Check out next week's episode where we bring you part two. And finally, let me remind you, you can find this and all of our previous episodes on your favorite podcast platform, so please don't forget to click the subscribe button. That's right. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, or send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. If you use Spotify, be sure to check our playlist from our Greatest Hits episodes. Make sure to tune into the next episode, One Hit Wonders of Heavy Metal Part 2. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe, and remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya.